and I am the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Tonight we continue our novena to the Immaculate Conception, in preparation for this consecration of the Institute on the day of the Immaculate Conception, December 8th. And today we meditate on Mater Plena Grazie, Mother Full of Grace. Mary's grace is nothing else than the salvation of her soul, elevation, sorry, the elevation of her soul to the level, to the height of her divine motherhood, as we have uh, meditated on the first day of the Novena, the mother of God. Because of this privilege of being the mother of God, then she has to be necessarily full of grace, as we will see. But to what extent, to what degree, is she full of grace? And what should we understand by full of grace? These are the two questions we're trying to answer now. What is grace, first of all? Grace is a participation, of course, to that divine nature, the nature of God. He communicates parts of his nature in some ways to the soul by the gift of his grace. This perfect and supreme degree is only, of course, in Christ's soul, when the soul of Christ is united to the divinity. There is in Christ, therefore, an absolute plenitude of grace. True man and true God, and therefore his human soul is necessarily full of the divinity because he is at the same time God and man. So absolute uh, plenitude of grace in Christ. Christ, as we know, is the head of the church from which we all receive his grace as soon as we remain, remain, remain members of the church. And we are called members of the church on the other side because we receive grace from him who is the head of the church. Therefore, Mary can be said to be the first member, the first member and has, she has primacy in the order of grace. Not chronologically, of course, but primacy in the order of nature, or human nature. She is the first one to have received in the highest degree God's grace, because she is directly uh, after the head, Christ, as she is the mother of Christ. So absolutely, closely united to the very source of grace, not only spiritually, but even physically. So in Mary, it's what we will call a relative um, plenitude of grace, whereas in Christ it's absolute, but in Mary relative because it's only according to the order of her nature and she's a human being and not a God. St. Thomas explains, he says, of his fullness we all have received. Whereas the Blessed Virgin Mary received such a fullness of grace that she was nearest of all to the author of grace, so that she received within her him who is full of all grace. And by bringing him forth, she in a manner dispensed grace to all, as we will see later. So as I said, we have seen on the first day of the Novena that she is the mother of God, and for that had to be immaculate. There has, there is no room for sin. There cannot be any room for sin in Mary. 
And therefore, because she is without any stain, she can be filled fully with God's grace. Objection now. Was Mary, mentioned that quickly last time, was Mary immaculate from the very moment of her conception? We mentioned that St. Thomas refused to believe this uh, conception to be immaculate because he argued that the sacrifice of Christ wouldn't have benefited Mary if uh, she was immaculate from the very conception, which makes sense in some ways. This is what, you know, St. Thomas, of course, was not, uh, was a great theologian, so his thought uh, makes sense, but with the light of other theologians, we were able to uh, define later the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. But yes, Christ died on the cross to redeem all human beings. He wouldn't be universal savior if Mary would have been conceived without any sin. She wouldn't have participated or get any grace from the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. That's the argument of St. Thomas. So, Don Scott will give the answers. There are some jokes about these two theologians, uh, as Kenneth Hugoroff would say. Um, St. Thomas said one wrong thing about the Immaculate Conception, and Don Scott said one right thing about the Immaculate Conception. So, Don Scott, who is this great theologian of the 13th century, he says, and he will give the, the right answer to that long discussion between uh, theologians, Christ was the most perfect mediator. Therefore, he exercised the highest degree of mediation in favor of another person. Now, he could not be a most perfect mediator and could not repair the effects of sin to the highest degree if he did not preserve his mother from original sin. Therefore, since he was the most perfect mediator regarding the person of his mother, from this, it follows that he preserved her from original sin. So he sees in the sacrifice of Christ, Mary, of course, married uh, the, 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 the graces. She, she was able to receive the graces of the sacrifice of the cross, but in a perfect way. Because Christ is, his sacrifice was perfect, that at least one person should have benefited of this sacrifice in a perfect way. And that's Mary, and this is why she is... Uh, able to be immaculate, not because she, you know, she wouldn't have received anything from the cross. No, because she received everything from the cross, but in a perfect way. And this perfection made her immaculate from the very conception. And finally, of course, uh, well, before that, it was reaffirmed in uh, maybe more a clearer way, words for you by Pope Alexander VII. He says, concerning the most blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God, Ancient, indeed, is that devotion of the faithful based on the belief that her soul, in the first instant of its creation, and in the first instance of the soul's infusion in the body, was by a special grace and privilege of God, in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, her Son, and the Redeemer of the human race, preserved free from all stain of original sin. It was in 1661, and finally, We'll have to wait until 1854 for the, uh, the dogma uh, by Solomon proclaimed by Pope Pius IX. So what's next? Oops, sorry, I skipped a little bit. 
the exemption from sin in Mary places her necessarily in the state of perfect grace, with the gift proper to the state of innocence in which Adam and Eve were before the fall, if she's exempt from any sin. Therefore, she must be in that same state in which Adam and Eve were before the fall, obviously. So what was the state of Adam and Eve before the fall? As we know, they would have special gifts, what we call preternatural gifts, that were above their nature, but yet not supernatural, not making them, you know, like God, but God gave them particular gifts, kind of in between uh, uh, a certain power from God and a certain human powers. And so these gifts were three. First, an infused knowledge. So they had a, a very clear, very accurate knowledge of everything, almost as direct as the knowledge of the angels. There was no concupiscence, there was no disattraction for what's bad, what's easy for us, what constantly pulls us down. There was no such concupiscence before the fall, as we know. And finally, they were also gifted with the gift of immortality, which implies no suffering, because death is the brings corruption to the body in the sense, natural sense of the, the word, corruption, and therefore before that some type of suffering. So no suffering, no death before the fall. So we could consider that Our Lady had the same gift if she was preserved uh, from any stain from her conception. So again, the perfect subordination of the flesh to the spirit, and in perfect harmony with God's will. And finally, the preservation from suffering and death. So let's see these two points. The first one, regarding the first consequence, this uh, concupiscence, this uh, attraction to uh, what easy, what's not good for us. Um, we all agree that these, there can be no concupiscence in Mary. There was no sin, no attraction to any form of sin uh, in Mary, for sure. She was perfectly sanctified in her person, as we are also on the day of her baptism, but not only on, in her person, but also in her nature, which is not the case for us in our baptism. We remain with the stain of original sin on our soul, and the consequences of that original sin. Whereas for Our Lady, she was perfectly sanctified not only in her body, as for our baptism, but also in her nature. Regarding the second consequence now, suffering and death, some things, there are two opinions here, and you're uh, welcome to stay in the chapel if you uh, hold one or the two opinions, uh, you will not be a heretic. Uh, to two opinions regarding the suffering or mostly the death of Our Lady. Some think that these defectus in Latin, or defects of our fallen nature, what we have inherited through the sin of Adam and Eve, uh, were assumed by Christ, accepted by Christ, except sin, and therefore God left them in Mary as well, although because immaculate she could have been without any of these defects, suffering and death. But because Christ accepted them, it's clear in his passion, it's clear from the beginning of his public life when we see him being hungry, being uh, crying on the death of Lazarus, uh, you know, trying to, uh, being tired when he has to go to Bethany to rest with his disciples. I mean, we see clearly, of course, that our Lord suffered in his human nature. And so, because of this so intimate union between Christ and Our Lady, 
God allowed that Mary would keep also these defects of her human nature in suffering and in death. So those uh, holding this opinion, keeping this opinion, saying that Our Lady died before swimming to heaven. It's the most common opinion among uh, the Latin Church. Uh, um, yes, this is the other opinion is uh, more uh, appreciated by the uh, Eastern Churches. And this second opinion would be that, just finishing up with the, the first opinion, I'm sorry. So God allowed that to make this cooperation, this configuration of Mary to her son, this cooperation in the work of, her, of the redemption, uh, he made this union to be perfect and total in Mary. So beautiful unity between Christ and his mother. And the second opinion then, uh, that something that she was exempt from death, and that's the, the opinion of the dormition, dormir in Latin, to sleep, to fall asleep. So it's, uh, it's a beautiful uh, opinion, of course, but you know, it's, I think, harder to, to, to hold this opinion when we think of this intimate union between Christ and Our Lady. But this opinion makes sense because she was exempt from sin. Therefore, she was not bound by anything to, to suffer and to die because uh, no sin in her. So she would have still in her these preternatural gifts of immortality and no, no suffering. So the dormition of Our Lady, where she fell asleep nicely and was taken into uh, heaven. So what to understand about now the meaning of full of grace? There are three moments. We might think of Mary as full of grace, you know, from the very first instance, like, like a recipient completely full right away. But it's interesting to think of this uh, fullness of grace in Mary according to three moments. The first, or first sanctification, was at her very conception in the womb of Saint Anne. Mary's grace had the perfect perfection of the disposition and the seed. So imagine the seed of that grace was perfect already and the disposition for Mary to receive this fullness of grace was perfect but yet not able to blossom as a, as a flower because she was you know, a little child or a baby so not uh, able to use her reason for instance to understand the mystery of the faith and, and so on to really develop that grace from God. So the first moment was, first sanctification was at her conception. The second moment at the incarnation, when Christ now became flesh in the womb of Mary, finding the very reason, the very reason and the source of that grace, of her grace. Her grace was now perfection, but uh, in its form. And finally, the third moment at the Assumption. Mary's grace reaches its supreme point, its highest point, and has now the perfection of its end, what she was created for, assumption, to uh, be united with God in heaven. So three moments of that, uh, 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 the perfection of the, the grace of Mary, uh, again, not, it's difficult to understand, it's not that she was not from the start full of grace, but think of that grace as a development, as a, a seed that can blossom over time, depending on her mission as uh, Mother of God, as co-redemptrix at the cross, and finally as Queen of Heaven during Assumption. So what's next then if she is full of grace? 
after the mediator, thou art the mediatrix of the whole world, the go-between, as many spiritual authors from the first century said. said. And this quote was from Saint Ephraim, who wrote a lot about a lady, I recommend his writings. More, Mary, sorry, gave the Redeemer the source of all graces to the world. And in this way, she is the channel of all graces. Channel of all graces. This is uh, the great Saint Bernard, remember, also another writing for, uh, reading for you, the, uh, when he talks about the aqueduct, our lady in this aqueduct, this bridge between uh, God and all men. Since Mary's assumption into heaven, no grace is conferred on men without her actual intercessory cooperation with God's grace. And that's maybe a dogma that we can hope to be you know, officially declared soon, the dogma of Mary as mediatrix of all graces. So that opinion, uh, of course, can be hold as pious and very probable, but not as yet uh, certain. And as a conclusion, just to uh, clear the memory of our great Saint Bernard, who's been uh, quite certainly offended by being uh, quoted against Our Lady when uh, mentioning the dogma of the Immaculate Conception in which he didn't believe when, uh, on Monday, so I want to, on the first day of the Novena, so I want to be in good term with Saint Bernard, so I will conclude with this long quote. appreciate your patience, but I think this is a very beautiful quote to help us uh, wait with joy for that commemoration of the entire fiat of Mary, not only at the Annunciation, but also, of course, on the day of the birth of the, of the Lord. Tearful Adam, with his soaring family, begs thee of you, a living virgin, in their exile from Herodons. Abraham begs it. David begs it. All the other holy patriarchs, your ancestors, ask it of you as they dwell in the country of the shadow of death. This is what the whole earth waits for, prostrate at your feet. It is right in doing so, for on your word depends comfort for the wretched, ransom for the captive, freedom for the condemned, indeed salvation for all the sons of Adam, the whole of your race. Answer quickly, O virgin, reply in haste to the angel or rather through the angel to the Lord. Answer with the word, receive the word of God. Speak your own word, conceive the divine word. Breathe a passing word, embrace the eternal word. Why do you delay? Why are you afraid? Believe, give praise and receive. Let humility be, whole, be bold, let modesty be confident. This is no time for virginal simplicity to forget prudence. In this matter alone, O prudent virgin, do not fear to be presumptuous. Though modest silence is pleasing, dutiful speech is now more necessary. Open your heart to faith, O blessed Virgin, your lips to praise, your womb to the Creator. See the desire of all nations is at your door, knocking to enter. If you should pass by because of your delay, if he should pass by by your delay, in sorrow you would begin to seek his, him afresh, the one whom your soul loves. Arise, hasten, open, arise in faith, hasten in devotion, open in praise and thanksgiving. Behold the hand of the Lord, she says, 
be it done to me according to your word. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.